Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, my guest was Brianne Kimmel. Brianne Kimmel is an early stage startup investor and an advisor to more than 20 companies. In her past, she's worked at Expedia and was an instrumental leader of go-to-market strategy at Zendesk. One of the topics Brianne Kimmel and I discussed was the transition from purely product-driven sales to hiring a sales team as your company grows. I think it's usually easier, especially for technical or product-oriented CEOs, to build the self-service part of the experience. Then, often as the company matures, you need to hire and grow an outbound sales engine. But at the same time, you often have this fear, right? This fear of losing your initial core culture or, you know, gasp, becoming sales-driven. This got me to thinking, how do we best grow outbound engines at traditionally self-service-led companies? And do startups wait too long to do this? I think customers look for stronger experiences, better experiences with their vendors. They want advice, they want consultations, and maybe product-oriented salespeople are the best ways to bridge that gap. Especially selling to larger companies, having someone that is consultative on the vendor side can be really, really helpful. And I think oftentimes startups undervalue this early on. Well, enough from me. Tweet at me at eBodic or email me at eric at pendo.io and tell me what you think. So welcome over to Product. I am here with Brianne Kimmel. Brianne has a storied history, some great companies, Expedia, Zendesk, and now doing some work as an investor. So Brianne, why don't we kick this off by you giving us a little overview of your background? Nice, and thanks so much for having me, Eric. I started out my career as a product manager. I was at Expedia in a number of different roles. Um, I first started on the consumer side of the business, focused on more performance marketing, and then moved into in-product personalization. I then worked on the B2B side of the business, which is actually how I got into enterprise software. So I started working on building internal tools. A lot of it was focused on basically stitching together various different parts of the Expedia Inc., organization. So I was there during a pretty crazy time. That's when there was a lot of hotel and uh, OTA consolidations. So during that time, I was fortunate to work on Orbitz. I worked a little bit on Travelocity, and then I worked on the Homeway acquisition, uh, which is a company that was based in Austin. And throughout my journey there, um, spent a lot of time with startups, very much early stage travel companies, but also looked at software as well. So during that period of time, that's when early influencer marketing first started taking off. So we wanted to figure out as a broader Expedia Inc., how do we get great travel photos at even like a destination or neighborhood level? So I spent a lot of time with a number of different startups that were working on programmatic content, working on user-generated content platforms. And that actually took me to Zendesk, um, where I got more and more interested in both um, B2B software, but also B2B to C business models. So Zendesk is a great example where um, during my time there, we went from one to seven products. So a lot of individuals know us for Zendesk support, but we also had live chat. We had more robust analytics. 
Um, it was a pretty crazy time there as well as we started to move up market and wanted to spend more time on expansion opportunities outside of just core customer support. Awesome. So let's talk about Expedia a little bit first. You know, it had to be interesting, you know, tackling kind of a, a large, I would say, antiquated sector. I think maybe use that word, actually. Talk to me about the challenges there. Yeah. So a lot of folks know Expedia as it is today. And uh, fun fact, a lot of people don't know that Expedia actually started as an internal project at Microsoft. So essentially, it was one of the first... I would say um, software applications to really focus on tackling a very broad and antiquated sector. So hotel chains, airlines, tourism boards had historically used really outdated software and this software was only available to agents. So I remember reading, you know, if you read about the history of Expedia, what was interesting is for those individuals that were working in travel, there was a lot of controversy on, you know, do everyday people have enough knowledge and can they actually book their own flights? Because historically, you had to go to the tra- local travel agent. You had to spend time and uh, go to someone who was technically trained. Like these are people that studied travel and hospitality, or these are people that became trained agents, and they were responsible for booking your flights. So it's funny when you read about the history of Expedia and sort of how we operate today. But it turns out consumers are very good at booking their own travel. In fact, they're very good at identifying um, travel discounts and ways to optimize their trips. And now we are fairly self-serving the way that we do things. And I think that model really applies to a lot of the trends that we're seeing today in software, where essentially, um, you know, over time, people are much better getting more and more sophisticated in the way that they choose and use software, um, which was a great learning at, at Zendesk as well, where, you know, we started out with primarily a self-serve business model. You know, it's been great for me as an investor now to really understand bottom-up product adoption. And it's been helpful to have platform experience at both Expedia and Zendesk and now applying it to investing. So talk to me a little bit more about working with the underlying providers. Like, what was it like changing the paradigm with the airlines? Like you were talking about booking tickets and having to have, you know, very, you had to have expertise in their systems, right? Yeah, it's really interesting because I think a lot of folks, um, you know, I'll get asked the question a lot. Well, Expedia is a large, you know, consumer platform. What was it like? And does it make sense to move into software? And it's really interesting because when you look at the uh, B2B side of Expedia Inc., our hotel account managers use Salesforce. So you actually have uh, hotel account managers that are based in various different neighborhoods. They own a portfolio of accounts. So they actually are the strategic AEs for more of like a B2B or enterprise terminology. And they essentially work directly with hotels and you know do everything from inventory optimization to pricing and packaging at the chain level. So it actually is behind the scenes, like while the output is a consumer app and it's great for us to book our travel, behind the scenes to actually make this work, you have a very large sales team, a very large global sales team who deeply understand their individual market and they're able to actually develop very deep relationships with the hotel chains, the airlines, the tourism boards as well. And when you first approached them with the concept, were they receptive to it? Um, so I was not there very, very early. So I uh, so I think what's interesting is I've been able to see a lot of the uh, transitions that have come later. Um, it's been funny to really see where Expedia has unlocked a lot of opportunities for hotels to increase utilization of their property. Um, What we're starting to see now, which I think is a cool trend in travel, is there's a lot of next-gen boutique hotels, and this is sort of the, you know, the Airbnb mindset where as consumers want to stay in very cool and trendy neighborhoods, 
one of the challenges for um, an OTA like Expedia is that historically there aren't a lot of hotels in the really cool neighborhoods. So you're kind of stuck. Uh, if you want to book with a large hotel chain, you're kind of stuck in a financial district. You're stuck, you know, close to the airport. Um, by having Airbnb like inventory and by having like a home away on the platform, you actually access a lot of non-traditional inventory. And then that allows travelers to stay in cool and up and coming neighborhoods. Hmm, that's very interesting. So Let's jump to Zendesk next. Talk to me about, you know, Zendesk for startups that particularly interested me. Yeah, Zendesk for startups is awesome. So uh, this was a program that uh, we had relaunched while I I was at Zendesk. Um, It's very similar to AWS Activate. Um, Stripe has their own version, which they call Stripe Atlas. So it's great to see um, software companies as they start to mature. There is an appetite to not only give back to the next generation of great software companies, Um, There's also a really nice way for you to continue to innovate by talking to startups who are uh, moving a lot faster than you as you start to mature as a company. Um, For us, it was great. It was sort of a a twofold thing where we actually started seeing a lot of low-end competition or new and emerging competition. So it's a great way to actually play defense against some um, up-and-coming software that typically are less robust in terms of feature set, but also they tend to discount a lot more heavily. So it was a great way for us to say, you know, if you are a seed stage company, if you're like seed to series A, we want you using Zendesk because that's a product that can scale with you over time. And we want to invest in your business, um, meaning we are willing to give you free software and services to be successful. So talk to me a little bit more about how you structured that program, because I think it's interesting as kind of the larger player trying to make sure that there's no low-end competitor that gets a solid foothold. That's one of the reasons I assume behind it. So tell me a little bit about how you thought about it, the strategy, the positioning, the structure. Yeah, it's a really interesting model. Um, It's almost similar to uh, the way we ended up structuring it. It was very similar to almost a marketplace model. So what we had on the supply side is we had um, a lot of great pre-seed, seed stage startups who essentially wanted access to free software. That was very easy for us to provide. On the demand side, we also had a great partner ecosystem build out where because Zendesk had such great exposure to very early companies, so our our early, early customers were Uber, Airbnb, Dropbox, and now we've just scaled really well with these hyper-growth startups, Um, it was a great opportunity for us to also build a network of essentially uh, VCs. Um, I spent a lot of time with incubators and accelerators. Um, So part of it was actually building out partnerships where we could essentially have a portfolio of Zendesk for startups, startups, and we could connect them with the right follow on funding, we could connect them to the right incubators and accelerators. There was more of like a high touch model where in addition to giving free software, we also wanted to make sure you were getting supported uh, to get you from, you know, your seed to your series A. And we played a more active role in in certain parts of that puzzle. So that's very interesting. Not only did you provide software in your area, but you provided business connections and help making them successful as a company. I I like that. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think it's a model that I learned um, a lot from the AWS team. So AWS Activate has done a great job where in addition to giving you free services um, and free access to the platform, they also have their AWS Loft, which is just that additional way to provide support and to bring a lot of startups together is by giving them space. Um, So we actually launched this model in Paris with Station F, um, and I partnered with uh, Rachel Delacour. Uh, uh, Zendesk had acquired Rachel's company called Biome Analytics. Um, That was a company out of Montpellier, and after the acquisition, um, Rachel transitioned into 
a startup evangelist role, um, which is a great role for her. Like she's very active in the startup ecosystem and, and she actually built a really great accelerator model inside of Station F where there were desks available for the Zendesk for startups participants. And you could also get connected to any VCs in her network and, and that sort of thing there. So that was more of like a high touch model that, that is still running today. And so one of the things that I hear from a lot of startups and companies out there that are looking to provide, you know, kind of that Zendesk for startups equivalent, right, uh, is worrying about cannibalization or leaving money on the table. How did you balance that? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think that's something that became a lot more complicated as we were going from one product to seven products. So historically, Zendesk for startups was limited to Zendesk support. Um, one of the questions that came up as we started to think about various different expansion products is at what point do we actually migrate startups into our full, um, like our bundled solution? And what's interesting is that um, with the startups we were working with, um, primarily venture back startups. So it was almost something where we knew organically they were going to grow into like uh, increased utilization of the product. So for us, it was, a it was a lot less about the short term gains and more about investing in startups that we believe were going to be the next Uber, Airbnb, Lyft, Dropbox. So for us, we were willing to make, you know, I mean, software in terms of margins, like it was worth us actually giving away the software for 12 to 24 months. Uh, rather than, you know, missing an opportunity and having these companies potentially go to a competitor. Okay, interesting. So from growth and marketing at Zendesk to becoming an angel investor, what yeah. was, what's the transition like? What made you want to become an investor? I mean, specifically at early stage companies yeah, too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it's, been, it's been interesting because I think I've always had an operating role plus done side projects in the startup ecosystem. So I started teaching at General Assembly about five years ago. I actually started when I was living in Sydney. So, um, you know, as it goes with all startup things, a friend of a friend was working at General Assembly. They needed uh, some teachers that were willing to launch an APAC. So I created uh, some curriculum around uh, go-to-market strategy, um, early user acquisition, and just started spending a lot of time with startups on uh, evenings and weekends. Um, as I continued to do that and started meeting interesting companies, it became very natural for me to start advising, which I think this is a question that I get asked a lot from operators and from CEOs as well is like, at what point do you start advising or investing? And I think a lot of times it just happens organically. Like you just start spending time with great companies and then it makes sense to formalize the relationship. So for me, I started out as an advisor. Um, when you start advising a lot of companies, you then become very time poor. So the only way to solve that is to start investing. So I started with really small checks. Um, I so started, if you give them money, you get time back? Yeah. <laughs> so basically, you either have to give startups time or money. So once you run out of time, it's usually a little bit easier to find money than time. <laughs> I got so it. So in order been, to get that share of the company, of it's course, time or money. Yeah, exactly. Of course. Well, and I think for I think for entrepreneurs as well, like I think there's a few things like you either want access to someone's network, you want their operating experience, or you'll meet entrepreneurs where, you know, they know exactly what they're doing, they've done it before, and all they want is money. So there's like three different types of companies that you can work with. And I think to start, I was helping a lot of pre-seed companies or companies that were just getting into YC. So they needed a lot more help and, and expertise in terms of advising and network. And then, you know, as you start doing later and later stage investments, like I'm in a few Series A companies, you know, they're already on the path to success. They either just want um, quick help when they need you, but for the most part, it's a little bit less uh, hands-on. 
Got it. So what, what qualities do you look for in early stage companies? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think for me, um, I have historically coming from a, from a growth product background, I typically invest in companies that have some traction. So I'm usually like a, a post product market fit investor. Um, what that means is typically um, when I invest, I also want to be as helpful as possible. So typically I will invest in companies that have very much um, product led founders. They typically want help more on the go to market side. So pricing, packaging, early customer introductions. So that's usually my sweet spot is really spending time on more of the business side before you hire a CMO, a CRO, someone to lead the more technical functions. So it's interesting you, you mentioned post-product market fit. How do you figure that out? Yeah, this is something question. that I, I think a lot of the companies themselves struggle with. Are they really at product market fit? Yeah, and it's, it's an interesting point because I think that What's different about consumer versus B2B startups is that I almost feel like in B2B you're always trying to find product market fit and product market fit actually may never exist. Because I think for every company I talk to, whether you're seed stage, whether you are post IPO, you're always trying to define the balance of like self-serve versus sales assisted or at what point are you actually moving up market? And I think that's something that's kind of a, a funny conversation to have with companies because it's something where you always have multiple different go-to-markets, and that's okay, because it turns out, um, you know this very well, enterprise product is very different from consumer product, where essentially you'll get you'll start getting hit with various different feature requests, or if you have um, you know, an account-based marketing strategy and there's a couple logos that you wanna land, um, as an enterprise PM, you basically build whatever you need to build to make this account successful. So it becomes more of a very customer-centric and a customer-friendly role, I would say, as a product manager or as an engineer when you're working in an enterprise company. So I think for me, like post-product market fit, I usually am looking for 500K to a million in ARR. That's just kind of like a, a number that I use as like an initial starting point. But I would say like as an investor as well, like, you know, I've done some a couple of pre-traction, pre-launch investments as well. And these are entrepreneurs that have you know, they're working on their second company or it's just the the vision that they have is so strong that, you know, it's it's one of those things in the seed landscape, like things move very quickly and there isn't necessarily as much time for diligence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I completely get that. The other thing you mentioned about, you know, value add was around pricing. And, mm -hmm. and that's another area I think product teams, product managers, product leaders and entrepreneurs tend to struggle with. Do you agree with that? I do. It's a tough conversation to have. Because it really depends on the type of product that you are building. It depends on who your buyer is. Like, are you going more bottom up where you want to make sure that it's very easy for the end user to put this, um, you know, monthly subscription on their personal credit card and expense it? And how do you scale that all the way up to large enterprise contracts where potentially you're selling to a CIO or to someone in the C-suite? Like, those are two very different conversations. Um, I think historically what's been interesting is... You know, I think in the last five years, we've seen a number of great companies who have started with primarily self-serve. And then the question is, at what point do you move up market or at what point do you have enough seats within a company that you can start having a more C-level conversation? I think that's one common strategy. I think what I'm seeing more and more is a shift towards, you know, giving uh, company-wide access. That way you can get as much data and insights upfront as possible. So I think there's a number of different models that people are testing, which I think is great. So I'm, I'm starting to hear more and more conversations around pricing and packaging, 
but oftentimes it does take you know a mix of experienced folks who have done it before plus testing and understanding like who is our customer base and who are we ultimately selling to yeah i did a, a podcast with kyle from open view on pricing and i feel like there needs to be a master class on pricing podcast coming up soon because it is something i hear you know people struggle with a lot and more often than not i see entrepreneurs underpricing yes which that's generally easily remediable but often you know has impacted their numbers yeah um, absolutely and by definition or by extension their ability to raise funding right yeah that's a really good point well and i think so highly of the work that kyle is doing because essentially you know in previous years you'd have to pay a very expensive firm you'd have to pay like traditional management consultants to come in and do uh, a pricing exercise or they'd help you with packaging like i think historically pricing is not something that you want to get wrong because once you have um, a low price point, it's very hard to increase pricing over time. Um, this is something that if you Google Zendesk pricing, one of the things we did very early on is, you know, at the first point when we started to increase our pricing, you don't want to make your first like power users, um, your first batch of customers angry when you start to increase the pricing. So I think that's when you start to think about, you know, grandfather clauses or like making certain custom packages and arrangements with existing customers, which if you're an early stage startup, um, that starts to get very time consuming. And it's also not something that you want to mess up early on. So I think it's great to see like the work that Kyle's doing at OpenView, just having conversations on like, what is the right way to think about pricing? Um, Patrick from Price Intelligently, he does some great work as well as far as really driving the conversation around um, usage-based pricing and how can you actually scale up based on the features that you're using. And I think that's really compelling as well because I think for a long time, SaaS companies in particular, you know, we were pricing things based on you know per user per seat. But I think what one of the risks or challenges there is you actually want to act, you want people to use as much of the product as possible. And I think for a lot of companies that are thinking about a land and expand strategy, if you want a lot of people using the product within a company, it doesn't necessarily make sense to charge per user per seat where you're technically disincentivizing growth. Absolutely. Depending on the product and how you actually want it to grow within an organization. Absolutely. And finding that metric that aligns to the value delivers is difficult. You it know, is, that yeah. Metric sometimes. It is, and I think you want to have enough leeway in your margins to allow for customer success. I think that's something I see a lot of times, especially with bootstrap SaaS companies, or I think SaaS companies outside of the Bay Area, where if you are incredibly capital efficient, that's awesome. But one of the challenges is that there are oftentimes ways that if you increase your margins just slightly, you could actually add a lot more value in terms of having um, more customer success people. You could have like richer programs around um, churn and retention, which I think a lot of times startups are very much focused on user growth. And there's an opportunity to actually really drive like feature adoption, individual feature level adoption, plus marry that with churn and retention programs. Well, it's, it's great to hear from, that you like Kyle and, and other people are helping out on the pricing side because even you mentioned like the expensive management consultants. I even see them like often like pedigree was like, yeah, I helped Microsoft do pricing when they're selling their boxes in CompUSA. It's a different world now. So having exposure to people like you and Kyle that can help startups out there think through pricing, I think is huge because you've been through it in the SaaS world recently, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, very much so. Well, and I think like 
having the platform experience was very helpful at Zendesk because I think when you have a single product, self-serve is a very easy way to grow quickly. When you start to have multiple products, that puts a lot of pressure on an end user if you expect them to adopt multiple different product lines. Like that's when you actually need to have strategic AEs, you need to have customer success. Like having someone who's a thought partner can be really helpful for your customers rather than relying on, um, you know, emails, push notifications. Like there's only so much you can do as a product manager. There's actually a nice shift where if you can marry your self-serve strategy with really strong technical counterparts in the sales org, that's when you can really start to see strong expansion revenue. Great. Well, let's talk about mistakes. You see, you've done the startup thing yourself a number of times for a number of years, and you've done some of the investing now. You talked to a lot of startups. What, What are some of the common mistakes they make? Uh, I think you touched on it very briefly, underpricing your product. Yeah, that's one I've definitely seen. What else? I think that like with underpricing your product, I think that typically is a byproduct of not doing enough research. I think there's also a piece as well, and this just is just speaking anecdotally, but I think as entrepreneurs, um, when you're focused on building something, it's helpful to really understand the overall value of the product and what basically determining like what is your initial wedge into the market versus like where will you actually see um, the most amount of value delivered. Like I think time to value is a really important metric. Um, I see this a lot where, you know, Bay Area companies are famous for this. It's very easy for SaaS companies to sell to other startups. And one of the challenges there is, you know, startups are incredibly um, sophisticated in the way they choose tools. So they're great because they're primarily self-serve users. It's easy for you to communicate from a product marketing standpoint because it's like talking to your friends, like startups understand other startups. One of the challenges there is that startups typically uh, turn at a much higher rate. Um, you know, we saw this at Zendesk, startups want free software. Um, and you also find that startups are very quick to adopt the next cool tool. So you do have problems in terms of like self-serve users actually turning to something that's a lot easier or next gen or newer. So it's interesting to see, like I encourage a lot of startups to actually start having conversations outside of the Bay Area sooner rather than later, because a lot of the um, enterprise, a lot of things that make a company enterprise ready are things that we don't necessarily think of inside of the Bay Area such as like HIPAA compliance, such as SOC 2 compliance. Like there's a number of like different things where like there are certain things that you need to be enterprise ready. And a lot of startups don't think about that early on because they see at least short-term traction with selling to other com- other companies of the same size. Okay, I like that. So you had a, a tweet I really liked. You know, I was thinking about this as we start like thinking about what types of companies people start. Uh, and, and to read read the tweet, I have it in front of me here. As a founder, you may never know how much impact you have on the lives of individual users. There is so much more to life than curing cancer. Anything that makes someone smile and feel better about their current situation is worth building. Talk to me about that. Yeah, thank you. Um, so that was a tweet. Um, I primarily do B2B software. I think what's interesting about the B2B landscape, I think B2B founders are very humble. And I think one thing that you'll notice is like within the first one or two conversations, there's always this conversation of like, well, I'm not curing cancer, so-and-so that I know, or, you know, I should be working on something in healthcare. Like, I think it's very easy as an entrepreneur to start comparing yourself to other types of companies or other founders who are currently building something. 
And I don't know if that's just a byproduct of um, everyone spending time together and sharing insights and you start to get like, not necessarily envy, that's definitely not it. But I think it's very, it's very easy to kind of say like the thing that I'm working on, it's interesting, but it's not as, it's not as interesting as it could be. And I think for me, like I've been spending a lot of time, like really as I'm talking to a lot of SaaS companies that I've worked with, you know, once you actually have HIPAA compliance, then you're actually starting to power some real, like the back end and like some really powerful parts of, you know, the next generation of medicine. Like I'm an investor in a company called Boxseat that's a video API company. Um, the minute that they added HIPAA compliance, they then started powering a number of different telemedicine companies. So while you're building a software application, it's more of a, a B2B use case. Once you actually start building these features where you're plugging into you know, you're powering like the next generation of hospitals or you're um, increasing innovation in uh, telemedicine. Like there's some really great things that you can do with your product. I think that oftentimes, you know, for entrepreneurs, when you're building, like if once you have a vision and you have an idea for your product, like that in itself is adding value to the startup landscape. You also are never quite clear on the impact that your product's going to have. And, you know, I think we saw this a lot at Zendesk and I definitely saw this at Expedia where for, you know, for a while I was working on internal tools and kind of infrastructure at Expedia. One of the things that we were working on was essentially building our own internal version of Zendesk. So I worked on the customer support and ticketing side of things, um, especially in like some of, we basically had the, the traditional tiered model where we had some agents that were overseas in Manila. Um, we also had um, on onshore agents as well in different parts of the country. And when you think about travel in general, you usually think of the vacation side of things, but we actually started to dig in and you could see all these different use cases for why people travel. Like people want to spend time with their family. They want to go to weddings. Like there's a number of reasons why people travel. And when you start to dig into like the customer support side of things, like that's a great way for um, companies to really be human and to actually like demonstrate like their vision and their purpose. And I'm seeing that a lot in the customer support space today where Historically, customer support agents have been viewed as, you know, not a core function of the business. Uh, customer support is viewed as being a cost center, not a, not a profit center. But I think those conversations are starting to change as the next generation of companies want to be more customer centric. So it's been cool to watch how that's evolved over time. Um, one thing that I really like is uh, we saw this a lot at Zendesk where you know, a lot of the great direct-to-consumer brands all use Zendesk. So whether that's Allbirds, Peloton is a great example, where Peloton is just so customer-centric in everything that they do, that it's actually created a whole new next generation of people who are not only talking about customer support, but it's actually like understanding the relationship between brand, product, customer experience, because they all tie into each other really nicely. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit now about product management. So in product management, what's a product problem that fascinates you these days? Hmm. Um, there's a lot happening in the product space. Like I think for a long time, a word that was very much overused is personalization. So one thing that I've been thinking a lot about and really spending time with companies on is, you know, what data sets do you need? How, how much data do you actually need to personalize the experience? And I think my counter to that and sort of a controversial point is I think oftentimes I'm not sure how much we actually have to personalize the product. Like if you build a great, easy to use product experience, you have a great UI, like it's very clear in terms of how you onboard users. I'm not sure how much you actually need to personalize it. 
What yeah. are your thoughts? On personalization? Yeah. Oh, you know, I, I envision a world in the future that's both adaptive and personalized. So okay. I look at them as two different ways. Like I think of the how I want to interact with certain applications. I'd love to adapt to my role and what I usually try to accomplish in that application. And by that, I mean, there's usually like three or four areas of functionality that I use extensively. And there's probably two or three that I never use. It would be great to hide that stuff from me in the adaptive way. And then it'll be great to personalize the functionality I do use based upon how I use it. So I would love to see personalization, maybe not in the, hey, Eric Boda kind of personalization, like they don't need to use my name, but I want them to personalize the application in a way that makes it easier for me to use that area of functionality. Yeah, that's and great. Then, and then also adapt their application so it's not necessarily cluttered with things that I never am going to use. But at the same time, I still like to have the power to pull things back. Yeah. So I mean, here's a great example of something that I think could be personalized. In fact, an application I'd pay for, maybe it's out there. And it's like my iPhone. iPhone's great, you know, great design, great product. But um, I use AirPods. I also have a car that has, you know, the Bluetooth connection. I can never get it set up right so that the music is coming out of the right place when I want it. You know, as soon as a phone call comes in, it goes on my AirPods and the music starts coming on my AirPods, which I want to go back on the car or vice versa, or I'm on a phone call that I hang up on and then, or I get, I'm on a phone call and I jump in the car and then it starts coming out my car where I still want on my AirPod, you know, the one that's in. On the right. <laughs> yeah. So there's like things like that that I'd love to have personalized to me. And I do it the same way every time. Like I always want my music on the car. I always want the phone call in my ear. And no matter how I do that, like there's no way to personalize my Apple integration that way just for the audio. Mm. And then have maybe the exception be the rare instance where there's someone sitting next to me that actually wants to talk to through the Bluetooth through the car. You know, but that's rare. Yeah. It's usually all in my ear. So like I could use that's an example of like the personalization I'd love to see. Yeah, that makes sense. I think another area I've been thinking a lot about is like how do we build more consumer like applications for work? And I think what's interesting is that as more and more companies, Pendo is a great example, as more and more companies are increasingly distributed, I think that it's going to become increasingly important for people to feel like they can be themselves. And one, one company that I've, I recently invested in and I spent a lot of time with is called Dev.2. And they are a platform for developers. Um, it's essentially more of a social network. So the idea is that LinkedIn is basically resume focused. You know, it introduces to an extent a number of biases when you want to hire someone because it's based on lagging indicators. It's things that you've done. It's limited to the company you were at, the role that you were in. Where did you go to college? What Dev.2 wants to do is they're and, actually... And also really how aggressively you network too, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, so for sure. There's a lot of people that just don't, you know, click connect every single person. Well, and I think that raises a really interesting point because I think when I think about remote teams and when I think about distributed work, I think it actually introduces a lot more opportunities for individuals who potentially have been underserved in a company. And I've heard this specifically applied to um, people who identify as being an introvert because introverts, one of the challenges is you will get into a meeting and maybe your boss is there and other peers. And it's usually whoever is the loudest talker or someone who's very extroverted ends up dominating the conversation. So one of the things that I've, I've read recently is oftentimes, actually, now that we have Slack, now that we have all these different um, ways of communicating with distributed um, teams and employees, it's actually great for people who identify as introverts. You can contribute a lot to the conversation. You can actually 
you know, uh, communicate in a new way that doesn't involve being like the loudest person in the room, which doesn't work for everyone. Um, and I think what's interesting about like dev.2 is when you have a profile, which basically talks about the things that you've done to an extent, but it's more focused on the things that you're learning now. Like you can actually write blog posts. You can start to host your own discussions. Like when you have a way to actually drive conversations about the things that you're thinking about, it promotes active learning and ongoing learning versus like the things that you've previously done, which I find to be as much a much better indicator of talent than simply looking at a resume. Hmm. I like that. So let's talk about growth, right? Because growth's all the buzz these days. I, I know you've talked about product-led growth before and companies are actively hiring for that role. And it's not just like the funnel optimization, you know, the, the growth hackers we saw before. Um, what are your thoughts on the growth trend? Are people prioritizing growth correctly? And do you have any advice on that? Yeah, it's really interesting because I think um, historically growth has focused, as you mentioned, on everything from performance marketing to funnel optimization to, you know, hacking your way into new segments. I think there's a lot of discussion in the broader growth community on how do you evolve the discussion from you know, where it was historically, which was primarily like quantitative marketers plus data science, plus like, you know, a few new functions that have popped up. How do you evolve the conversation into becoming a core part of the company's strategy? Um, I think software companies have done this really well by having a self-serve team and eventually layering on an enterprise go-to-market team. I think one of the questions that I have, and this is something I'm still actively exploring, is What's interesting in software is that I think oftentimes it's very easy to get started on the product-led growth side of things because you typically have product-minded founders, you have a core engineering team, so organically you start experimenting and it's it's a lot easier to build the self-serve part of the experience. I think what is a little bit harder for startups, especially more technical and product-minded founders, is at what point do you actually start building your next phase of growth, which typically is less scalable. You start hiring salespeople, which one of the things that I hear a lot from companies that I talk to is when you hire salespeople, you also want to maintain your initial core culture. And I think that's something where um, you want to make sure that that's when like you start to see this sort of weird position where companies identify as being product-led or they're sales-led. And we've talked about this before, where I think if you've come from a more technical background or you know if you've been focused solely on product, to actually hire um, individuals who join on the sales team, you're actually not really sure like how that's gonna work. Like what do you call them? What do they do? Are they doing inbound? Are they doing outbound? And like proactively reaching out to prospects. So it's been interesting to see like the evolution of early stage companies. And when you actually start to think about like, when should we hire someone? Um, and it's been great to see, like, I think there's a whole next generation of great companies and Pendo included, where I think there's a great opportunity to hire what I call product-minded sales reps. And they're basically more consultative sales reps who understand product. They talk like a product manager, um, you know, maybe after a few years as a sales rep, they actually move into product management. I don't know, but it's great to see that like, you know, that's what customers are ultimately looking for is someone who can give them the data that they need, someone who can empower them and help them be better at their day to day, um, especially at large companies, because large companies don't typically have that sort of counterpart internally. 
Um, as you're in an increasingly large number of meetings and, you know, especially at big companies, you spend most of your day in meetings, having someone that's more consultative on the vendor side is really helpful. And I think oftentimes startups undervalue that early on. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you talked about this label of, you know, product driven or sales driven companies. And I think some people describe like Pendo as a sales driven company, which I think is ironic in the sense that we were started by four product guys. None of us had ever been in a sales space. Maybe Raul did, we did some biz dev, Raul and I, but you know, we're, we're product, maybe, you know, tinge of marketing here, engineering there, but product people yet still, we've been labeled that way from time to time. So it's, it's interesting, but you started talking about this whole product led growth and sales not being mutually exclusive and the product minded salesperson. Can you dig in a little bit deeper to that? I mean, is it really important for companies that have started with product-led to, to look at sales assisted? I feel like if they don't, they could, they might hit that plateau, so to speak. I think Do you so. agree? I mean, I think it's interesting and it all comes down to uh, looking at your product usage. So great conversation to have with Penda. Like once you really start to understand how your customers are using your product, that's when you can actually figure out like where does a human touch make sense? Because I think historically, like we're now mature in terms of understanding marketing automation and building out lifecycle programs and like lead nurturing and a lot of these terms that we throw out on the marketing side of the business. Um, you know, we are all in using some sort of marketing automation. I think what's previously been missing and still missing today to an extent is actually really deeply understanding which features are your customers using. Because I think organically, if you're coming through a self-serve funnel, you're likely using one or two key features. You haven't been fully onboarded to use the full suite of features, or maybe like one or two worked for you for the first 12 months, but now it's time to mature in your product usage. And oftentimes that comes down to a more consultative conversation. Um, like I think one of the interesting things that we did very early on at Zendesk and still do today is for our self-serve users, we will still do account optimization calls so we'll actually hop on the phone. We'll go through like, how are you using the product? You know, what are some areas that you're getting stuck? And, and more importantly, you're digging into their goals and you're understanding like, what are the things that you're currently focused on and what are things that you should be measuring and, and tracking over time? So I think having a good understanding of your customer's KPIs is really important. And then you can start to layer in additional features or additional ways for them to use the product to tie into those goals. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great point you brought up is that you see people that you know will come in and will use like two features, two areas of functionality out of like a, a vast area of value they might be able to get out of it, and they stay there for a long period of time. And it was product driven, which is great and all, but if you're not giving that, if you're not adding reoccurring value to the customer, or if that value kind of stalls or deteriorates over time, then it's hard to see that reoccurring revenue continue to go or that expansion revenue continue to go. So you can. You can add to that by either, you know, teaching them about additional product in app or via customer success or sales. I think that's where you're going. With yeah, that, right? very much so. Well, and I think it's interesting, too, because when you empower specifically the sales team with uh, relevant data, they can have much more productive conversations. So I know a number of companies are using G2 crowd data. They're using technographic data coming from, you know, any of the data providers. You know, they're using Clearbit for enrichment. I think there's a number of tools in the, in the broader sort of B2B landscape now where 
as a product-minded salesperson, you can understand not only um, how users are adopting your product, you can also understand the other technology that they're using across the business. So I had worked on the Zendesk Apps Marketplace for a while, and one of the really interesting insights that we found is having the marketplace is a great data point to really understanding what other technologies are they using in addition to Zendesk. And we found that a lot of the early stage startups, they were using the Trello integration, which we, um, and then in doing additional user research and really spending time on this, we recognized that in the early days of your company, um, you know, customer support can't sit in a silo. It's less about, um, you know, it's, it's less about more product related topics and more about like these early data points that are coming from support should actually be passed to product and to engineering. So by having a Trello integration, by integrating with, you know, basically the full suite of tools that a product manager is using, that actually add a lot of value across the company. So while Zendesk is very much a solution for customer support agents, by using these various integrations, we actually could track how customer feedback was being spread across an organization, which was really compelling. Hmm, interesting. So let's let's talk about the future. You know what what upcoming trends do you see in product and product management or in SaaS in general, and why do you think they're trending? Yeah, I mean, I, I spoke to this a little bit earlier. Um, I'm seeing a very clear shift from customer support being a reactive conversation to a proactive conversation. Mm-hmm. So I think as more and more companies like Peloton. Um, like Allbirds, like you have these great direct-to-consumer brands that really invest in building relationships with their customers. And that's becoming something that's um, increasingly contagious across even large companies, where I think historically customer support has been tied to someone is emailing our company with a complaint, whereas now I'm seeing startups and large companies build really robust programs around customer engagement. They're, you know, investing in, I'm seeing a lot of like, corporate gifting apps. So there's all these applications where people proactively want to do nice things for their customers. And they're also ensuring that they are fairly defensible in terms of ensuring that customers write a positive review on like a G2 crowd or any of the number of review sites. Hmm. So I think it's been great to see that shift from, you know, how do we create customer centric companies from day one? And like, what are the tools for us to do that successfully? I like that. So let's wrap this up by talking a little bit about Brienne. So tell me, what's your favorite product and why? Oh, favorite product and why? Um, That's a good question. I think lately, um, I'm a huge fan of reviews. So I actually spend a lot of time on G2 Crowd. Yeah. Yeah, I love looking at like customer feedback. What are people saying about different products? I think Sift3 has done a nice job with that as well. Um, And I know they've been very successful. As far as seeing like, how do people choose software and like what is some of the feedback at an individual company level? So I kind of geek out on that, which is, which is quite I mean, funny. Totally an investor thing, given that totally. like, you're not like, you're not talking about reviews on Yelp or Zagat or whatever. No, you're talking about reviews on G2 Crowd. I'm talking about reviews on G2 Crowd, which I think is really interesting. Like I love this whole space of like, how do we build consumer applications for the workplace? Cause I think there's a lot of cool stuff that we could do. Like, I've seen um, like with Airtable and with Notion, like you can see some really cool applications where people are planning their wedding, they're you know planning parties. Like I love actually going through some of the Airtable templates and seeing how people are using the product because we're kind of entering this world where people are you know 
increasingly obsessed with productivity. There's like a whole suite of various different productivity tools out there. Uh, I think it's also funny to see uh, everyone's making the Marie Kondo joke now. Like everyone's talking about like, let's just simplify things and like make things as easy as possible. So I've been looking at that as well. It's like if we're moving into this world where people are looking at, looking to become increasingly productive, they also want to have like, you know, remove things that don't bring joy. I think it's kind of a funny space to be in where it's kind of like personal, but also professional-ish. I like it. I, I, I mean, it's, it is a huge trend, you know, going about organizing, optimizing, removing, you know, focusing on what you do. Yeah. And I'm hoping like, I, uh, I'm like super optimistic that someone will do this for calendars. I like really want someone to Marie Kondo my calendar. Cause you How have so? like, tell me what well, you want. You have like Calendly now, which is great because you know, it's easier to schedule meetings. But what you're actually doing is you're sending your calendar to someone else and giving them like complete control to book a meeting whenever they want. So, I mean, I've heard this from friends where they'll say, you know, if it's a, if it's a salesperson that sends you a Calendly link, you're going to book it like two months, three months out because people try to avoid sales conversations or they hold off until they have to talk to a salesperson. So I almost wonder if there's like a smarter way for us to do calendaring where it's a lot more people-centric, it's a lot more human, like is there easier ways for us to actually manage our time? That I don't know, like I think there hasn't, there's been a number of tech companies that have done, um, you know, sort of robo-executive assistants or these sort of like robo-advisors, which I don't think that has historically worked very well, but I'm optimistic that someone's gonna figure out the whole calendaring thing. Hmm. That'd be interesting. I would be up for it. Final question for you. Uh, Three words to describe yourself. Oh, wow. That's a good one. Hmm. Three separate words or we want, we want like a sentence. I think you can, <laughs> I'm giving you creative license to yeah, go with that. Okay. I think my latest thing is I'm like always be helpful. Like I think even if I'm incredibly time poor or, um, you know, not sure how I can help you today, I just always want to be helpful. So that's what I've been working towards. Awesome. Well, thank you, Brianne. This was a blast. Thanks, Eric. This is great. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.